You're listening to Father Kirby Longo's Homilies, powered by Mountain Catholic. Father Kirby is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena, the parochial vicar of St. Anne's Parish in Butte, Montana, and chaplain of Butte Central Catholic Schools. Enjoy. I've put together for this year what I honestly believe to be probably the most common, the most relevant, and the most important questions that I've been sort of, that have been demanded of me as a priest from people who either are struggling to believe or don't believe or are just trying to live in the world today. So when, as we approach these subjects, I think there's some fascinating information and there's some deep and powerful truth for our own spiritual lives, but I'm doing this to equip you all for the mission. That's the goal. So you've all, in a sense, as sort of the leaders of the youth around you, regardless of how leader-like you feel, you're the leaders. So I'm giving you this for the mission. So as you, as you sort of take it in, take it in with sort of the hope of giving it to another. All right? So the questions are much more fundamental than... than I'd say even I faced in high school. When I, when I was sort of debating with friends of, in high school, it was rarely a debate over the existence of God or the origins of the universe or did Adam and Eve even exist. It was more like Protestant to Catholic, maybe a Mormon from time to time. But usually, usually it was a more nuanced, like, what's the truth about God? It wasn't like, is God even anything to do with the truth? Is God even relevant? So, so you need to be able to answer much more demanding and difficult questions than I was answering. That God was sort of assumed, even, you know, I guess I was in high school just over 10 years ago. That was a sort of assumed thing. It's not anymore. So, so that's why we're addressing these sorts of questions. Okay, so the first one, what do you got in there for, for the actual title that I gave it? Okay, so faith and reason, is the existence of God reasonable? Okay, what are the arguments against God's existence? Thomas Aquinas only gives us two arguments against God's existence. And if there were more than two, he'd give them to us, because he's brilliant. But what would you say is one? Problem of evil. Problem of evil, of course, it's great. All right, and, and I already presented on the problem of evil at CYC convention, but I'd love to, if you guys are interested, give you some... Something on that, again, at one of these CYC board meetings in the future. So just let me know if you'd like that. But I don't, that's a whole issue in itself that, I, that is just very complex and good. But what's the other one? Science. Science, yeah. Science explains everything. Science explains everything. We don't need God. We've got the multiverse. Uh, so we can, we can talk about the multiverse, but that's... Really, those are really the only two. Everything, all the sort of nuanced arguments, all come down to one of those two arguments. All right, so if someone's going to, to, you guys have the notes. Gosh, you cheaters, I didn't even think about that when I was asking. I I thought you just nailed it. Oh my gosh, okay. So everything comes back to those. Okay, so we're gonna look next. Who's got the burden of proof here? We, as Christians, always assume it, all right? That's the norm. Everyone puts the burden of proof on to the Christians, all right? So don't, do not take it so easily, 
All right? How, in the history of humanity, what have the majority of people believed? We, God exists. The vast majority. The incredible majority. I bet if you put the whole history of humanity into a room and had everyone raise their hand who believed in God or a God or some form of the divine, I bet it's in the 99.7 percentile of all of the history of humanity has believed that there is a God. So, so who has the burden of proof right, when it comes to whether or not God exists? Now, I, I put here you know, an argument for both. Those who deny God existence must, must disprove God because of the vast majority. The vox populi, the people have spoken. God seems to exist in some form, so prove that he doesn't. Then there's the flip that we talked about during Mass. Is God visible? No, he's not apparent to our senses. It's not obvious that God exists. So anything that's not obviously empirically true, you need to prove that it's true. Now that's actually a pretty good argument. So... I think in the end, as Christians, we take the burden of proof, not because God seems unreasonable, but because we're called to evangelize. So, I mean, most atheists just don't really care whether we still believe in God. Like, in the end, they'll just walk away. It's not a big deal for them. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty much irrelevant. Although that's not necessarily true of everyone. But I would say we're the ones, in a sense, who desire deeply for them to believe in God. So it, it actually matters to us. So we accept the burden of proof joyfully. Okay. Now let's talk about proof. I want to go through one of Thomas Aquinas's proofs of God's existence. And now I don't know what your impressions of the proofs of God's existence are. I think generally we sort of misinterpret them. Now don't look ahead because I want to. I want to walk you guys through this. Is there a wasp? No, it's a spider. Spider. Reasonable. Spiders are evil in almost every sci-fi novel I've ever read. So, okay. So is, so is God still relevant? How, you know, how do we speak in a way that prevents what we talked about during the homily, the clown in the burning village situation? So the origin of the universe. That's a relevant question, all right? It doesn't matter who someone is. The whole idea of like well infinite universes infinite timelines infinite you uh, people try to say that try to pull that line now it's not true it's just well it could be in a weird way true that there could be infinite universes god's infinite you can create that's a big question but there could be multiple universes they still have to have an origin all right there still has to be a beginning we live in time. There has to be a beginning of time. And therefore, we can ask a relevant question. How do you explain the beginning of time from a scientific perspective? What starts everything? All right? Now, we make an argument for motion. But there's, there's a sort of problem with the way that most people see the first argument for motion, Thomas Aquinas. I'm going to read the argument for you guys. And it's not in your notes, so you're going to have to listen up. And if you've read Thomas Aquinas before, congratulations. If, if you haven't, listen closely. He's very precise. He's almost, uh, he almost spouts off this proof in an offhand way. So you kind of have to listen up. All right. The first and more manifest way is the argument for motion. So as far as the manifest way to, the most obvious proof of God's existence. 
It is certain and evident to our senses that in the world, some things are in motion. You agree? Okay. Now, whatever is in motion is put in motion by another. True? True. Okay. For nothing can be in motion except it is in potentiality to that towards which it is in motion. Whereas a thing moves in as much as it is an act. Now, have you guys ever heard of the concepts of potency and act? Is that unfamiliar? Okay, so now if I'm standing here, I have the potential to move. All right, I'm not moving. I have, I'll, I'll, I'll not move. I'm not moving. I have the potential to take a step forward. This is potency. Now I take a step forward. I'm in, I'm now in action. So I'm in act. So potency, act. Okay, that's, that's sort of what he means by that. Now, now we'll listen a little bit further. So he's saying that only things that have potential can act. But nothing can be reduced from potentiality to actuality except by something in the state of actuality. So what he's saying is nothing can be put from sort of like being still into motion except something that's capable of making it move. So you have to have something capable of making it, something move in order for a thing to move. It's a pretty b- basic argument. He's using very precise language, though. Thus, that which is actually hot as fire makes wood, which is potentially hot, to be actually hot. So do you, do you understand that now? So fire burns wood, is what he's saying. Fire has the capacity to burn wood. <laughs> and thereby moves and changes it. Now, it is not possible that the same thing should be at once... Okay, now listen to this. It's not possible that the same thing should be at once in actuality and potentiality potentiality in the same respect, but only in different respects. For that is actually hot, cannot simultaneously be potentially hot. Does that make any sense? Okay, so I'll, I'll 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 just explain it. So... Something can't, I can't be standing here still and taking a step forward at the same time, is what he's saying. Okay? And then, and then he's saying that, that the piece of wood can't be about to be hot and be hot at the same time. It's basically the rule of non-contradiction, if you guys know the the rule of non-contradiction. Can't be and not be in the same place at the same time in the same respect. Okay. So it is therefore impossible that in the same respect and in the same way a thing should be a mover and moved, that it should move itself. Therefore, whatever is in motion must be put in motion by another. Now that makes sense. If that by which it is put in motion be itself in motion, that this must also needs be in motion by another, and by another again. But this can't go into infinity. Okay, so now, before I even finish this, I'll just, I'll just give you an example. It's actually, the example is on the back page. So we'll just skip to that and then we'll come back. Okay, I'm talking to you. As I talk, I'm changing. I'm, I am acting, okay? Making animated gestures. Flamboyant gestures, not flamboyant, animated. Okay. <laughs> I'm changing from potency to act. But I could be doing a lot of other things. All right? I could have been mountain biking today instead of being here. But I'm not. 
So why, why am I here? Don't look. Why do you think I'm here? Okay, yeah, I love you guys. Yeah, okay. So I want to teach you about the church, and I love you. I love you, so I want to teach you about the church. Okay. So why do I want to teach you about the church? Because I'm called to evangelize. Why do I want to evangelize? Because Jesus gave the Great Commission, and the gospel gives us life. Now, these are all, these things are all dependent upon one another, okay? So, I, me being here isn't sort of a complete act in itself. It has something which caused it. So, I'm here because I'm called to be here. And then why am I called to here? Because I was called to be a priest. And these are all sort of in this very moment, all right? So, all of these things are dependent upon each other in this very moment. If it weren't for all of these reasons, I wouldn't be here. Now then, the final reason, we can take it all the way back to God. All right? if, if, I, if it weren't for God acting in a very definitive way upon this moment, I wouldn't be here. God is the ultimate reason. Okay, so God, because God is the only reason that exists in itself. Why does God exist? Whoa, yeah, whoa. God is what we call, the reason we use these words, God is pure act. God has no potency. We all have potency because, in a sense, we're, we're finite. We're dependent. We could say the word contingent, which means we don't have to exist. The, the universe would still go on if we didn't exist. If God didn't exist, the universe wouldn't exist. So... Ultimately, if you want to explain the present moment, you have to trace every little thing back to God. You could say you could go through the same exact argument for why you're here. You could walk yourself through it. Why are you here? You know, it, even if it's like, my parents made me be here. Why do your parents make you be here? Well, because my parents want me to know the Lord. Why do my parents want me to know the Lord? Well, and, and so then it eventually goes back to the same thing. But you could even say like, why am I at school? I mean, you could ask any of those questions. And in that very moment, it, you have to trace it back up to God because that's the only thing that explains the present moment. All right? and, and we could call it, philosophically, we call him the prime mover, the unactualized actualizer. That's a good one if you want to confuse someone. Um, now, how people, how people misinterpret this is that we try to make it we, we fall into what we call infinite regress. So now I'm going to give you guys a paradox, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm not really pumped to give it because it's so frustrating that it'll distract you from the rest of the talk, but I'm going to do it anyways because I love this paradox. Okay, so if I want to walk over and shake Michael's hand, I have to go halfway first, right? If I want to go all the way, I have to go halfway. Okay, so I go halfway. If I want to go the rest of the way to shake Michael's hand, I have to go halfway first. Correct? I go halfway there. I go halfway. I go halfway. I go halfway. I keep going halfway. Do I ever get to Michael? No. So therefore, I don't really move at all. How do we ever move if we can't get halfway to where we're going? If we can, only ever go, if we can never only ever go halfway, how are we going to get anywhere? Yeah. So, we can't move. We're stuck. 
The universe is totally static and no one ever moves. Now, does that, now is that true? Can you prove it's not true? No, because that's an argument from, from what we call infinite regress. So infinite regress is the idea that sort of, it's the idea from that of dominoes. So when you, when you set up a, a series of dominoes and you knock over the first domino and all the other dominoes are, fall because of that first domino. Now, when the first domino falls, the 50th domino will eventually fall. But is that 50th domino dependent on the first one? Yes. In some respect it is, but not immediately. Yeah. So it's only really dependent upon the 49th. So now if you argue from infinite regress, you're arguing from things that aren't dependent on other things in that very moment. So like, am I dependent on my grandfather to exist? Yes, Yes, in some respect, but am I dependent on my grandfather right now to exist right now? No. No. It's an argument from infinite regress. Okay, so can we prove, can we prove from an argument like that, that that the universe had a starting point? Can we just argue like, well, you can't, like, you can't just keep going back and back and back. You know, the role of dominoes eventually has a beginning. You know, it has to. Is that a reasonable argument? Like, okay, well, you could say it is, but philosophically it doesn't really jive. We say that about the universe because we know the universe exists, has a, has a beginning. To make, to make a philosophical argument that, that actually makes sense in the moment, the things have to be... So everything has to be dependent upon the other things in that moment. Okay? Can't have a sort of, a proof can't be like vaguely dependent upon something. Let, let me just use an example here. Thomas Aquinas didn't actually believe that the universe had a beginning according to a philosophical argument. Aristotle thought the universe was infinitely old, that it had been going forever. Because a good philosopher, an honest philosopher, can't prove from an argument according to infinite regress, like going back in time, that the universe had a beginning. Thomas Aquinas only believed it did because the scripture said it did. And, and he was an honest philosopher. He said, according to philosophy, we can't prove the universe had a beginning. But he also didn't know about the Big Bang. You know the, infinite, the universe had a beginning how long ago? That's the Earth. 13.5-ish. Uh, I think it's 13.5 is the last I read, which was today, so that's pretty recent. Okay, the universe is 13.5 billion years old. I put here a little explanation of redshift in case you want it, um, in case you're interested in redshift. How does it work? The universe is expanding away from us. As light moves away from you, it takes on a, a red hue. As, as it's moving towards you, it takes on a blue hue. So we can sort of like look toward the center of the universe and we see the blue shift. That's how we know we look, we're looking toward the Big Bang. We look out as into the ever-expanding universe, and we see a, a red hue. And that's how we know things are expanding out from us. And is the universe, is our universe speeding up or slowing down? Speeding up. Wow, that's amazing. It's still young. 13.5 billion years. Still speeding up. <clears throat> the argument that Thomas is making that we're dependent upon God for motion in this very moment is more like gears. So that's why I put this cute little picture of gears. 
When a gear moves, all the dependent gears, like have you ever seen like a beautifully constructed watch? Oh, I love watches. I'm a watch geek. When the gears in a watch move, but every gear is dependent upon the, the other gears in that very moment to move. If that first gear stops moving, everything else stops immediately. Us performing any act of motion in this very moment is dependent on God in this very moment. He's that first gear. Third thing we're going to talk about now, though, and this is sort of how we're going to wrap it up, is meaning. Now, what, what is meaning? What does it mean for something to have meaning? Okay, purpose. That's a synonym, though. <laughs> what does it mean? Okay, so that moves you. Yeah, it's like... The, the, the thing about meaning is it's a very root word. So when someone, says, when someone says meaning, it's like, you can't really say what meaning is in the sense that like, meaning is the reason you do other things. Like you do other things because they have meaning. To, to ask the question, what is meaning? I mean, we sort of say today, like, follow your bliss. And that's kind of like the modern, really lame, shallow way of saying, you know, whatever has meaning for you. Now, this is a really, this is one that for... I have more conversations about this than anything. I rarely go into Thomas Aquinas' proofs of God's existence, but I do when I need to. Now, but when we're talking about meaning, that's, that's a legitimate question, and that's not a specifically religious question. So that's a great way to approach a friend. You say, like, what gives you meaning? What gives your life meaning? Everybody wants their life to have meaning. Everybody wants happiness. Right? That's what we're doing everything for. Right? It doesn't matter who you are, what you believe in. Everybody wants to be happy. The most, well, I don't know if it's that compelling, but it's, it's pretty common. I have, a, I have a buddy who's, he doesn't believe in God, but, so I asked him, like, well, how do you choose what to do with your life? Like, you became a dentist. Why'd you become a dentist? He's like, well, I follow this. Well, he doesn't say it in a voice like that. He's a pretty confident guy. He said, well, I follow a, what I call, flow. And the idea of flow is, now it, so, it sounds kind of you know, skater, kid-ish. It's like, man, just follow the flow. But that's, it's, it is, it's a psychological strategy of life, I guess you could say. The, so I, I put here as just small, meaningful, pleasurable things that add up to a meaningful life. But it's sort of the utilitarian way of approaching life. Like, I'm, tr- I'm going to try and, and achieve the most small, meaningful things in my life that will... S- in the end, add up to a generally joyful and happy life. Once you take away the existence of God, you have to, if you're honest, take away any idea of ultimate meaning. There's no such thing as ultimate meaning in the world if you don't believe in God. It is, that is a made-up figment of your imagination. If you think there's an ultimate meaning, but you don't believe in God, you're lying. Now, if anyone's honest, they're going to admit that. But his thing is that, like, well, because there's no ultimate purpose, that doesn't really matter. My goal is to sort of have the most happiness along the way. And when I die, my life will have been more happy than not happy. And the idea there is one that, in a sense, I would say it sort of goes against the very proof of God's existence that we just talked about. Because, because everything you do, you do for a reason. And then everything that all those reasons have reasons for which you did them and all those reasons have reasons for which you did them 
I guess when someone sort of says something like that, makes that argument, which I'd say most people make uh, who, would, who don't believe in God, you can sort of just ask, why do those things make you happy? Like, why do those small things that you're trying to acquire make you happy? And then they'll give a reason. They'll be like, well, but what's the reason for that? Like, just keep following it. Eventually, it will lead to one of these four things that I just wrote down here. Money, pleasure, power, honor. If someone doesn't have God as the thing in their life, and this is relevant for all of us, by the way, guys, because as much as we say we believe in God, we are going to fall into the same thing all the time. All right? Those are the four things of the world. They're the world. They have been forever. They will be forever. Those are the four things. Money, pleasure, power, honor. And that's a good examine for yourself. I do it often. If we don't have God... That these are the only four options. Um, and these four options, I would say, actually often just come down. Today, pleasure is number one. Money, mostly because of pleasure. Basically, if, if someone admits that, then they kind of immediately feel ashamed. Because no one wants those, any of those things to be the meaning for their life. Who here knows the cave analogy? Enough of you don't, then I'll just give you a quick overview. Plato's cave. It's good to know for your one-on-one philosophy class someday in college. So the one on the left, imagine you're sitting in a cave. This isn't the full picture. So you're sitting, well, you don't know you're in a cave. You're sitting against a wall and you're shackled to this wall and you're looking at another wall and your neck is shackled so that you can't really turn side to side. So all you're doing is looking at this wall. Now there's people on your right and left, but they're shackled in the same way as you. So they're staring at the wall and they can't tell really what's going on around them, including they can't really see you because they're shackled. Now, up behind you, there's a group of dudes marching around with some puppets, and there's a fire behind them that's casting light through the puppets against the wall. Now, all you're seeing is the shadows of the puppets against the wall. They're doing, they're putting on shows for you, and it's pretty exciting. It's like primitive TV. So you're sitting there watching this sort of primitive TV and they're doing voices too, and they're pretty good at voices, so it's, it's a nice little beautiful shadow puppet show. That's all you've seen for your whole life. That's your whole life. Been sitting there, looking at that wall. You don't know that it's boring. It's the only thing you know. It might be slightly uncomfortable, but your body's probably adapted pretty well by now. It's been years. You're sitting there, staring at that wall, and you're just like, whoa, this is a good show today. They're putting on a good show. So, and then you don't know it's a show. It's just life, actually. You don't know it's a show. There's a dead guy next to this guy. It's unfortunate. Uh, didn't make it out. Anyways, so this guy right here broke away from his shackles. Now, suddenly you find yourself, someone else has broken your shackles, and you're free to move. And you think, this is odd, but I'll move. So you start to move. It's awkward. You've never really walked before. But, but you walk around this little wall, and you see, uh, like, a way up out of the cave. That looks kind of scary. I probably won't go. And then someone comes behind you, and they're like, you're going, man. You're going. So they just kind of pull you against your own will, sort of up out of the cave, and then and it's midday. So you imagine being in a cave your whole life, your eyes are very well adjusted, you come out of the cave, it's midday. Miserable experience, it's hot, the sun's shining right on your face, you're miserable, you can't see anything because your eyes are way too dilated, and you just kind of like wander around like an idiot, you know, for a full two weeks trying to adjust to reality. But then finally, you adjust, and you're looking around, and you're in like up by Sealy Lake, and you're like, whoa, this is incredible. This is literally 
trillion times better than a cave shadow puppet show. Couldn't get much better than this. You think, I can't believe all my buddies are still sitting down in that cave watching a shadow puppet show on the wall when they could be out in the world looking at all these beautiful things that are actually real. So you kind of go running back down into the cave and you say to your buddies, hey, this is all a big shadow puppet show, all right? It's not real. There's a real world and it's just up out there. And they say what? Uh-huh. Sure. Shut up or I'll kill you. <laughs> and if they manage, if they could, they would kill you. Plato said that the perfectly just man would be killed. All right. He said if someone, was, if someone came into the world and they were actually perfectly just, we would kill them. Jesus. Yeah, 400 years later, Jesus comes in the world, kill him. You come down and you tell someone about the truth and they try to kill you. Luckily, they're shackled up and all they could really do is kick at you. So you're fine. You try to lead someone else out. Who knows? Okay. So that's the cave analogy. <clears throat> the point is that it's really tough to lead someone to the truth because... Being in that cave is way easier than trying to survive in the world. You know, that guy gets back up there. He's like, yeah, the world's beautiful, but lion bears are trying to eat. The world is harder. You know, it's not as safe as being in the cave, even though it's infinitely more beautiful and true and good. Okay, so now Nietzsche is the modern. He takes this and changes it a little bit. He goes through that whole cave analogy. You break free, someone pulls you up out of the cave. But lo and behold, you're in a barren wasteland. There's nothing out there. Okay, so that, that, that's, that's the modern story of the cave. People honestly think that they've worked their way up, they've searched the truths of the universe, and they've found out that there's nothing there. There is no truth. Okay, there's no beautiful world out there. It's a barren wasteland. We all just got out of the cave and found out that there's no God and nothing has meaning. Okay, so that, that's, that's what Nietzsche says. Now his question is, can we construct a meaning? So can we sort of build up a world in the midst of this barren wasteland and say that it has meaning and believe it? Now, do you think that's possible? If you just make up meaning, can you make yourself believe it? I mean, I'd say no. We can make ourselves believe a lot of things. But the idea of ultimate meaning, we can't make. Because in the end... We know that we were the ones who made it up. We cannot construct a meaning bigger than ourselves. We, we could maybe construct a meaning and say, this is the meaning for me. But I could never construct a meaning and say, this is the meaning for you. And I can't, I can't do that honestly. Because I know I'm the origin of it. And even for me, would you die for a meaning like that? Like, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, when it came to it, and guys were holding stones in their hands saying, Paul... Are you, are you really saying that Jesus rose from the dead? Now, if Paul made that up, what was he going to say in the end? No, guys, no, we're good, we're good. I'm out, like, don't stone me, I'm good. Here it's like, Andrew, we're going to saw you in half, man. Are you, are you saying Jesus rose from the dead? It's like, no, you're not going to let him saw you in half for something you made up? Right? It's ultimately the state of the world right now. All right? people, don't, people don't actually believe the cave analogy. Not those who don't believe in God. Because if you don't believe in God, there is no ultimate meaning. Okay, so we're, we're coming in saying, yes, the cave analogy is true. That if you're just paying attention to the things of this world that are visible to you right now, you're not seeing the truth.
the full truth is in Jesus Christ, is existence of God. And that's a reasonable thing because we all know that the visible world is unsatisfactory, that everything points in a way towards something beyond the visible world. And we can reason our way to that. It's not, it's not untenable. It's not unreasonable to think that because there's still a lot of big questions. We've got a long ways to go. All I was trying to point out here, and, and as far as we're going to make it tonight, which we've made it, God creating the universe, the universe having its origin in God, is a reasonable thing to say. And that we can argue that in a compelling way. That we can at least make someone question the fact that they think that that's not true. At least plant in their hearts the sort of, perhaps it is true that God created the universe.